Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello everybody, Mike Moynihan here for another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. Thanks everybody for joining in and listening in. I'm really having a great time doing this, to be honest with you. And it's so much fun to A, have to come up with topics and guests and trying to figure all of that out. The good news is it's only once a week, so it's way different than uh, maybe a normal, you know, uh, YouTube show or whatever. So it's been great trying to think how I want this podcast to develop over time. And so what I've done today is I've, I've really gathered in someone that I have a lot of respect for in the podcast world. In fact, he was one of the major influences on me wanting to start a podcast. And those of you that kind of know the history, I, I've kind of wanted to do it for a long time, but didn't really know how. And I did an episode for uh, Hobby Palooza back in July, you know, when we had no national. And so Hobby Palooza was something I wanted to do. And I got to talk to two different guys about podcasting and it was fantastic for me. I was like a kid in a candy store, just learning and, and asking questions. And I'll ask Mike here in a minute, my guest, what he thought about that interview. Obviously it was okay. Cause he came back. So I got to talk to Mike summer who runs wax pack hero and John Newman, who is uh, Sports Card Nation. And so I just wanted to talk to Mike a little bit, get his take on vintage. He's a podcaster, a fellow podcaster, and I thought it'd be great to talk to him. So here he is, Mike Summer. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. The Wax Pack Hero. The Mike Summer, the Wax Pack Hero, yes. You know, I still owe you a theme song. I'm going to write you a parody theme song I'm still going to do that. I, that's a promise. And I'm going to, you know, channel my inner Weird Al Yankovic to come up with a really cool card related jukebox hero theme song for you. So, yeah, I have one, one of my coworkers. She, well, before COVID, before we were all working from home, when, you know, she knew about the, the website and the podcast and stuff, and she would randomly sing that in the cubicle next to me every once in a while. So, yeah, that, that is a thing that some people like to say. I've I've got to do it. It'll be so much fun. I would so, love that. Man, I am excited to have you on here because, as I just said, you were one of the inspirations for me wanting to do a podcast after that interview and really just getting really super excited about it. Because mm -hmm. um, you've, you know, you're not like a long, long-term podcaster. And I know you have a blog. And so... Just kind of tell everybody your your history in that, and then we'll start talking about cards. 
Right. So for me, it really stems back to, I was a, a collector since 1986 and I, 86 was the first year I started collecting cards. And I was an avid collector from 86 to probably around when I went to college in the mid nineties. So I had about a decade run there, but I was really out of the hobby for almost 20 years. I never got rid of my cards, but I wasn't actively collecting up until about 2015. And when I came back to the hobby in 2015, so much had changed. And luckily, I got connected with the LCS in my area. And Sean at that shop, he helped me learn what I had been missing out on all this time and how much had changed. And I started to have more and more conversations during 2015, 2016 of other people who were like me, who were in their late 30s and 40s and getting back into cards and trying to figure out what in the world was going on now. And that kind of prompted the thought of, you know what, maybe there's a way for me to share some of the things that I've known in a way that would help other people bridge that gap and ease their transition back into the hobby. And that's really what started the, the impetus behind the Wax Pack Hero blog. I wanted to be able to share some of those things I had learned. I wanted to be able to talk about some of the things that I was doing to buy and sell cards to generate the funds to help supplement and support the cards that I wanted to buy and, and create somewhat of a self-sustaining hobby because one of those things that had changed so much is cards got a whole lot more expensive at that point. And so that was that was one of those reasons that I started that just to kind of share some of those thoughts, to share some of this whole idea of merging the the business and collecting side of the hobby into to one thing. And as I started to do that, gained a little bit of, of traction with that, started to get invited onto a couple other podcasts to be a guest to talk about the blog and talk about some of those things I was doing. And I had a ton of fun doing that. And that prompted that whole idea of, well, maybe I should start a podcast of my own and to be able to share some of these things in a different medium. So not just written, but also have an audio medium for that, too. And so back in December of 2019, I started the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute to serve as an audio version of of some of the the content that I wanted to do to talk about the hobby. That is awesome. And such a common story, I think, for people you know, leaving the hobby for some period of time for any number of reasons and then coming back and going, oh my gosh, this hobby is way, way different. And what's funny is we have very, like, I didn't have that break. I had periods, again, mainly financially driven where I didn't collect as much, but it wasn't, I never stopped collecting. And so to me, what I find interesting is I have a hard time. There's times when I think, well, gosh, everybody knows X, whatever piece of knowledge it is about the hobby. Well, shouldn't everybody know that? And what I have found is, especially through this podcast, is I put it out kind of on uh, blowout forums and Net54. And the feedback I got was, man, this is awesome. I'm just getting into vintage. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this hobby's been around for 100 years and there's people just getting into vintage and I, I don't want to depress them and say, get your wallet out. You know, it's going to be, but it's, and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be expensive, but, but it certainly can be. And so I, it's funny, the feedback you get, well, gosh, shouldn't everybody know this? And you saying, I just got back into 2015 and so much had changed. And when you got back in, what was your focus as a collector? Were you, 
modern, vintage, all of it? What what kind of started your focus? What was your start of your focus, I should say? Yeah, so I when I was collecting primarily through the 80s and early 90s, I was a set builder. I love putting together sets because for me, there's that piece of a historical record for the year. And so I love putting together sets. And so when I jumped back in, that was one of the things that I tried to do. And I found that putting together sets was less popular than it was back in the 80s and 90s. And that worked to my advantage because that meant that a lot of those base cards that I wanted to get and those insert cards, I could get dirt cheap. And along with that, that also led to the, the realization that there are still pockets of people who are putting together sets. And I could actually fill a niche there buying these cards dirt cheap for a penny or a half a cent a piece in some of these bulk collections and sell them to other people who are trying to put together sets like me and offset some of that cost. And so being a set collector and coming back in as a set collector really opened my eyes to the fact that it's not necessarily all about the autographs and relics and this high-end market that has developed over the last decade or so. But there are still people who like base cards and standard insert cards and those types of things. And I was able to fill that niche, generate some funds and help offset the, the hobby. And so that was my primary focus when I came back. Along with that, I had heard some folks and, you know, similar to what you had shared with me in a previous conversation who had started to go back and put together some vintage sets from the years that that they were young and when, you know, back to when they were born or what, whatever. And I started to gradually do that too and put together some of those sets from the late 70s. I was born in 77, so I went back and got the the 80 and 79 and 78 and 77 sets. And as I did that, I was like, this is really cool. I'm really enjoying this. I want to keep going. And so for the last few years, the 70s have been my focus from a kind of a vintage set collecting goal. And I've gone back and put together the complete sets all the way back through 1970 um, as of 2019. And then for 2020, my goal was to finish the 1969 complete set and was able to do that earlier this spring. And so that those have been kind of my focuses. I'm still kind of working my way back year by year. Uh, whenever I come across vintage in a collection, it goes separately off to the side because I know I'm going to put together or work towards putting together that set at some point. But right now, um, I'm in the early stages of looking at what I've got for the 1968 Topps baseball set. So let me ask you, as you're building these vintage sets, and this is a golden age for cardboard, we got to talk about the vintage most most of the time, but are you buying individual cards? Are you buying lots? Are you How are you putting those together? Yeah, so for me, a lot of it starts with this whole idea of buying and selling to create a self-sustaining hobby means one of the main things that I'm buying is big collections. And oftentimes that has a mix of a handful, a box or so, you know, of, of vintage stuff and a lot of modern. And so a lot of what I'm starting with are these pieced together lots that have come from a variety of different collections that I've purchased over the years. And then I will use sport lots a lot to start to fill in from there because I do so much selling on sport lots. I get store credit and I'm able to just essentially turn all of these modern commons into vintage cards that I need and get them for free. Right. And so I'm using sport lots as a, as a foundational element for filling in a lot of those holes. 
and then either through one of the LCSs in our area or eBay or some of those other things, I'll fill in some of the, the bigger cards that I've needed um, from those different years. So let's talk about sport lots for a second, because I've used it in the past as a player collector to pick up common cards of players that I've collected over the years, but I've never done it with vintage. And I, my fear on sport lots is there's no pictures and you're, you're hoping they can accurately describe their card as good or very good or near mint or whatever descriptive uh, description they're giving. How accurate have you found that to be over the years that you've been doing that? Yeah. So for me, when I think about vintage condition, I'm one of those folks who condition really doesn't matter to me essentially, as long as it's in one piece. And so there are some pictures out there and, and I will use that mainly if I'm trying to decide between two cards that are quote unquote labeled the same on the site, but are priced significantly different. I'll start to look at, at those that have pictures or, or those that don't. But for the most part, when I'm trying to put together these sets, conditions, not something that I'm super focused on. And so it hasn't really come into play a whole lot unless a card is, is labeled as such. And it just seems like when I compare the price that they're asking on sport lots to what it's available for on com C or on eBay or some other site where I, I can readily see a picture, then I, I might come into play and I'll decide to buy it on one of those other platforms instead of, of sport lots. But uh, it, it hasn't really come into play where I've had to worry about the accuracy of what they're labeling as good or very good or excellent compared to what it is in reality. So since you finished 69 you're and, and you're starting to work your way back, now you're getting into where you've got cards that are big boy cards, right? Yeah. You've got even in raw form, right? You're you're paying more than you were paying for 70s cards. And especially on the bigger name players, the Hall of Famers, how are you going to have you even thought about this? that's going to start taking a little more, man, I better make sure a, this card is real, you know, cause it's expensive and B the condition there is way more sensitive than on a common 1962 tops Del Crandall, but you better darn well have the 62 tops Joe Torrey be accurately described for, I mean, how do you do that? Are you concerned about that? Yeah, that is going to be one of the things that causes me a lot of internal anguish in the coming years. Uh, you know, for one, it's going to it's definitely going to necessitate me slowing down the pace of putting together some of these sets. You know, in the 70s, other than some of the high numbers in the early 70s, I was able to still kind of put together two to three of those sets a year, you know, from what I was starting at. Um, once I, I'm moving into 68 now, and that Nolan Ryan is going to be the first card that is going to be, a, a like you said, a big boy card, even in raw form. And it's the first one that I'm truly concerned about because of the number of fakes that are out there, or reprints that are out there. I'm not a big fan of graded cards. And so I really do my best to avoid buying graded cards whenever possible. But I, I'm, unless it's, going to be an in-person sale through a trusted source. I think I'm going to have to start picking up a few graded cards in the coming years as I start to move into the sixties. And that's going to cause me a little bit of internal struggle. I, I value the potential or the, the higher likelihood of authenticity that comes from buying graded cards, 
but I struggle with paying a premium for a random number that is assigned to it by a, an arbitrary human. And, and so I'm going to have this internal struggle as I continue to do that, but it's definitely going to have to come into play. I'll probably have more of a focus on using a network of resources and a network of relationships that I've built within the hobby to try to track down some of those bigger, um, higher profile cards from the sixties and some in-person deals at the national and some other things like that, that will um, help maybe alleviate a little bit of that, but as, but some of it is going to end up being online and I'm going to need to use some, some graded purchases to help ease some of that, um, that type of thing. I'll still buy as many of the commons and a lot of that, you know, lower end stuff as I can through ComC or through sport lots where, um, it's not quite as high of a likelihood that there be issues with authenticity and, um, but yeah, that'll definitely be a, a more prominent issue for me in the, in the coming years. You know, I want I want to throw this out there to people, the audience, because you probably already know this, but if you're getting into vintage and you're worried about authenticity, you know, buying a slab is your first line of defense, right? Cause these companies have at least tell, or they're at least certifying that they think it's a real card and, and, and they're actually really good at that. They're not able to tell you very well if it's trimmed or not, apparently, but they can at least tell you, is this a real 1956 tops Mickey Mantle or whatever. But what I would tell you collectors out there, if you're building sets like Mike is, or you're doing, you're trying to pick up some of the bigger cards and you don't really care what the grade is, or you're going to crack it out eventually. I would look at SGC from a price point standpoint, you can get an SGC, you know, whatever number, the equivalent PSA grade is going to be by and large significantly more because of the PSA registry effect and the other things that you can pick up. The, and, and so I would tell you guys out there to don't fall asleep on SGC graded vintage. If your intention is just to crack it out because you're going to pay a lot less, you're going to have that same peace of mind that the card is legit. And if that's why you're buying the, the graded card, then, I'd just say go with SGC. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And and I know they're not near as prevalent as the actual formally graded cards, but I know you can even do some searches on just authentic. You know, that they're they're deemed authentic by these grading companies without the the number label that's associated with it as well and and sometimes that can be a way to to get it at a little lower of a cost too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I want to ask you about this because I've been binge listening to your podcast, by the way, just I've been stalking you from afar. And well, uh, you, I think, yeah, I know I've been, I've loved it and I've been following the journey. And so you guys that may not, if you're listening to this podcast, you're, you're probably <laughs> following wax pack hero, but if you're watching on YouTube and you're a podcaster or you, or you also do podcasts, uh, you definitely want to go check Mike out because he's, tells us about this journey that he's had over the last little bit of this million card purchase. You basically bought out a card shop, right? Yes. And tell that story because it's such a great story. And then I want to ask you about what you're doing now and the vintage aspect of that. Sure. Yeah. So we've got an LCS in my shop, the, the one that I mentioned earlier, who's, who's been around for, for several years he also does a lot of Magic the Gathering 
business and along with that hosts a lot of Magic the Gathering tournaments. And as that continued to grow for him, he was looking to expand his storefront. Long story short, he ended up taking over the storefront next to him, tearing down the wall in between and pretty much doubling the size of his shop. Well, being that they were two separate storefronts originally, there was kind of an entry level or an entryway area and office in the, the storefront that he took over that he didn't remodel. One of our other friends approached him with the idea of running a shop within a shop and doing kind of a permanent show setup, having a store within a store type concept. And that worked well for them because the one guy focused more on lower end, older wax and that type of thing. And the main shop owner was focused on brand new wax and uh, the higher end of the market. Well, long story short is the one friend was kind of had his run with it, had kind of grown tired of it and approached me with the opportunity of buying him out earlier this year, essentially taking over that storefront. Um, taking over the the prepaid lease that was in there for the for the next several months, and along with that, taking over the million cards or so worth of inventory that he had. And I talked talked it over with my wife. I talked it over with the main shop owner, and we kind of um, ultimately I was able to work out that arrangement. And so now I I do I run a part time physical card shop as well as all of the the online sales that I had already been doing. And it's been a ton of fun over the last couple months to get that up and running and off the ground and have that physical in-person presence to supplement a lot of the, the online sales that I was doing. I'm going to ask this first question because it'll. I want to ask how much of that million cards was vintage. But the first question I want to ask to set that up is what do you define as vintage? A guy that collected as a kid, came back to the hobby recently how do you define vintage? What does that mean to you? I mean, 1990s got to be vintage. It's 30 years old now. And so pretty much anything 90 or newer or older, I mean, no, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So I kind of use the standard definition for vintage of uh, 70s and older Okay, is generally, I think what, what a lot of people would deem as vintage. Um, so, so 70s and older is kind of where I get there. Maybe 80 because it was before Donruss and Fleer had come into the market. I would estimate three to five percent, probably so far of what I've seen um, of that was vintage of the million cards. Now, to be honest, there's only two to three hundred thousand of that that was like actively sorted and for sale in the shop. There was another three to four hundred thousand that was in the the guy's garage that I bought out that I've gone through and, and started to go through that. And there's another three to 400,000 that's essentially in storage that I've not even touched yet and will eventually get to in the coming years. But the, the vintage piece is one of those things that is a, is that it creates that conflict for me of thinking about this from a business mindset and thinking about this from a personal collecting mindset, because you know, when I'm seeing these 60s Willie Mays cards and um, Sandy Koufax cards and, you know, these these guys that I know that I had not had before and I will need as I start to build these sets, there are definitely some of those that I've pulled back and kind of put in my personal collection and not left in the shop for sale. 
um, all the duplicates and those types of things I have done that with, but it's, it is a, a good mix. There was a, there was more vintage than I thought there was going to be going into it. And I'm happy that that's the case. Um, and so there's still quite a bit that I've got for sale, but it's, it's definitely more 80s, 90s and modern focused than it is vintage focused for, for the, what I bought. Did you buy it largely sight unseen? I knew what was for sale in the shop because it's, you know, I had been there. That's the same place we have a lot of local shows. I did some spot checking in um, the stuff that he had in the garage and in the, in storage. But for the most part, it was sight unseen. Yeah. But we, we were able to get to a price where I was comfortable with what I had seen that I would be able to do enough with it to, to cover that cost. Now, you know, I'm, I am doing this physical shop, but I've got a day job, nine to five job. And so this is a, a pure side hustle, hobby, second endeavor, whatever you want to call it. And so it's not my primary source of income. It's not what we're dependent on as a family to generate our income. And so that gives me a little more of a, a leeway or a little more of a cushion in all of that. Um, it would be a much different situation of opening up the shop and what I would be able to keep for my own collection versus sell if I was solely dependent on this to earn a living. How fun is it having an actual brick and mortar shop? Even I know you're open, only open like noon to four Saturday and Sunday. Yep. So it's eight hours a week. You get to just immerse yourself in cardboard. How much fun is that? It's, it's a ton of fun. It's everything that you imagined for me. It's everything I imagined as a kid, even though it's on a limited basis, you know, I get to see, you know, we talk about that. There's not as many kids in the hobby, but today, you know, there's a kid and his dad that came in and we're, we're digging through quarter boxes, trying to find some of the, the cards of the players that, that they really like to do. And so getting to see that there's some other kids and their dads that come in and buy a bunch of junk wax sealed boxes. And every time they're like, did you get any new ones in? Did you find any new ones? And, you know, so, you know, I sold some 87 tops packs uh, yesterday to, to another uh, guy and his kid. And they're buying all that kind of stuff. My daughter's coming in with me and, and helping me sort. And she's spending time digging through, separating cubs for Bo for the 1 million cubs project. And, you know, she'll, she'll help me do some of that type of stuff. And we filmed a TikTok earlier today of doing the sniff test for some vintage where she was smelling a modern card and smelling a 1969 card and, and just kind of making some, you know, a, a fun video about doing a vintage sniff test. And so it's been a ton of fun so far having this shop, um, doing it part time. And, and yeah, I, I can't say enough about, about what it's, what it's meant from just a pure enjoyment aspect. Yeah. I could see being a, a true shop owner and a collector already. There's a conflict of interest there. That's, That's an issue, but man, you could get sick of cards. I mean, it, it's completely possible. And I hear about it. You get totally burnt out you know, the business end totally takes over the enjoyment part of it. And I think you're doing it in a way that will, because you do have a day job, you do have life commitments and family commitments. This isn't going to overwhelm your life and you don't need it. That's the cool thing is you, I don't need it. That's, that's what I think makes this hobby so important is if you're doing it to make a living, it's got to work out, you know, this is something you're doing with an ancillary piece of your time and your, and your budget. I think it's fantastic. 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about having it be self-sustaining for me because it removes all of that pressure. You know, the 150,000 cards that I've got on Sport Lots, the 65,000 cards that I've got on ComC, and now this essentially this million cards of, of inventory that I purchased from the physical shop, for the most part, at least within the next couple months, will be completely paid for with profits. And so if I need to take a break for a while, I don't have to worry about, oh, but I can't, I got to keep listing or I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to pay this back or I'm going to have to pay off the credit card or I'm going to have to do, you know, do all of these things. That's not the case for me. And that's one of the reasons why that is such an important component of it for me is because it lets me enjoy it. It lets me take a break if I need to take a break because I don't have to worry about making that next payment. It's all essentially paid for with profits. And personally, that makes me enjoy it that much more, knowing that I'm buying these vintage cards and it's all covered. It's all paid for with profits. Everything in the shop paid for with profits. And, and that just adds that much more to the overall enjoyment of the hobby and that, and, and that type of thing for me. I bet because we, we all have heard horror stories, right? Of people buying all this stuff and not being able to really truly afford it. And then your hobby doesn't, isn't a hobby anymore. It's a burden. Yep. And that's a shame really. If that, if people get there and hopefully people don't going back to vintage real quick, Mike. All right. I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite vintage set? Wow, that's that's hard because I'm continuing to move my way through it. And in the way that I've done it is I've not I've, I've really not dug in to the intricacies of a lot of these other vintage sets that I haven't actively started to pursue. And so for me, it changes as I continue to explore and I continue to dig in. I think if I was going to name one right now, I think my favorite and this might sound weird is the 1972 top set and partially yeah. because it, it looks so weird it's yeah. so odd looking but it's so unique it's one of the final two years that had cards released in series and so it's got those high number more short printed cards that add some value to even the the quote-unquote common players you know at, at that time it was a challenge to put together because some of those higher number cards were a little tougher to, to track down or it, maybe I should say it was tougher because it took a little more planning for me to be able to space out from a self-sustaining hobby perspective to buy them. But I, I think that one was one that I had the most fun tracking down and putting together. It's got the unique colors and design and all of that type of stuff with it and was one of those final two years of of tops releasing that baseball set in series. Okay, that qualifies as a vintage set for sure. So right now, I guess maybe also your second favorite is 1968, and then next year it'll be 1967. And as, as we move back, that'll be funny. Yeah, uh, I, like I said, I, I think, you know, as I, I – I'm one of those people who sometimes feels intimidated by vintage, right? Because I, I don't know all of the ins and outs of all of the different variations and the different things that were done to um, potentially look for fraud and scams. You know, I am a learning vintage collector along the way. And so sometimes I feel intimidated 
And, and I really am truly not digging into some of those ins and outs until I get to that set in the journey, other than when I stumble across some of those key players and Hall of Famers in some of the collections and I set them aside. And so, yeah, I don't know that I've got enough uh, knowledge. You know, you were just hitting on comparing the 53 tops and the 53 Bowman set in one of your earlier um, podcasts. And that was a fascinating conversation to me. And I learned so much along the way as I listened to that. And I think there's going to be more of those types of things that I pick up on as we go. Um, you know, even some of those years are, yeah, well, there's not this player in this set or this, the, he didn't have a card in that set. You know, those are things that I'll still be learning along the way that make this whole thing fun. The other one that I'll throw out there that might be in competition with 72 was the 63 Fleer set. And, and I also put that one together um, a couple of years ago and, and had a lot of fun doing that. It's such a small set. It's such a unique, uh, has such a unique story with Fleer trying to step in and, and compete with tops with modern current players at the time, uh, not just the, the older guys. That is another one that is, is pretty meaningful to me as well. That's ironic you say that because my next deep dive that Andy and I do will be 63 Fleer versus 63 Tops. And it's because I'm going to kind of do, I just did 53. I'm not trying to do the threes on purpose, but it's just more of trying to do a 60s set, kind of 60s comparison. Then I'll do a 70s one. Then I'll go back to the 50s just to kind of, and I'll do those kind of once a month because it's so much fun to do what you just said is the exact reason we did it wow, I learned so much listening to that about those two sets that I didn't know before. And even after doing it as long as I've done it, I, I'm learning stuff too all the time. And uh, it is so, so cool to learn. And uh, the resources that are out there, Mike, maybe talk about some of the resources that you've used as, you, as you've acquired this million dollar million dollar million card collection you wish it was worth a million dollars yes, That's I, I wish so there's there's too many 80s and 90s cards in there to be to make it a million dollar collection but the million card collection as you've gotten back into the hobby what are some resources that you've used yeah, you have used to build your knowledge base back up yeah a lot a lot of my go-to's have been things like the blowout forums net 54 forum um, I'll try to r just Google as many different articles and different other sports card blogs as I can find that are covering some of those different sets that have helped fill in some of those gaps for me. Um, Rich Klein is another person we talked about relationship building. R Rich Klein's another person that I've been able to establish a relationship with um, over the last year or so. And his encyclopedic knowledge of of cards has been been helpful in helping me piece some things together as I go. But those have been some of the the primary places that I've gone to as I started to dig in. Yeah, and I think, well, first of all, we're friends now. Mm -hmm. So I kind of know a thing or two, just so you know. And mm -hmm. if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. <laughs> so that's also good. I'm not going to just uh, blow smoke. But the idea of having people that you trust that you can ask these questions of is so important because you can get burned so quickly and so easily and sometimes very expensively if you don't have people like i remember at the national last year well really every year i have several trusted people one guy is named andrew 
he has a YouTube channel and everybody out there knows him as Nuff Said Cards on YouTube. I call him the cardboard whisperer because literally if I'm looking at a card, I, I will, all right, I'll call him up. I say, hey, I'm on aisle, you know, you know how big the national is, right? I'm on aisle 1204 or whatever. Come over here. I'm looking at this uh, card and like last year at the national, I bought a maze rookie 51 Bowman, only a PSA two. So I wasn't concerned. You know, I just, it was just a pretty card. And I wanted them. I didn't even actually, I didn't even know I wanted a maze rookie when I went, but I called Andrew and I said, Hey, come over here and look at this with me. Does it, is it, I'll, I'll use the word accurately graded. Like, do you feel like it's a fair grade for the card condition? Um, does it present well? The things, the more aesthetic things about the card, not the number that was on it. And then you have to relate that to, well, is it, do you think it's a good deal? And man, you know, I think he has VCP like memorized, you know, um, VCP for those of you who don't know is vintage card prices. It's a online uh, database of, of card prices essentially for vintage cards. I may do a whole episode on VCP and how it works, mm -hmm. uh, but he has VCP and we were able to look it up and just see, is it fair? And all. so you got, and I, Hey, do you, what do you think? You know, I really genuinely wanted him to tell me what he thought. It wasn't I was asking for ego. Per I, I genuinely, hey, what do you think? Does this purchase make sense? Do you like this card? And so having people like that is incredibly important in the vintage world, way more than the modern world, right? It's it's night and day, completely different arenas. In your shop, do you have people coming in asking for vintage very much? Yeah, there's a couple guys who are, are older gentlemen that really are wanting to track down vintage. And so um, I've got, a like I said, a few um, boxes of, of 70s and late 60s cards that are in the shop that they look through from time to time and, I, and a handful of other um, vintage cards in the display case. And so there are people who are, are trying to track those things down for sure. And what do you, like when you have people come into the shop uh, I guess, is it just, do you just talk with them? Do you try to find out what they're looking for? I mean, are you kind of the, you know, old, old man over there, you know, going, Hey, get off my lawn. Or are you more, you know, come on in, take a look, check it out. No, I, I try to be as welcoming as possible. One of the things, you know, when I got back into it and I would go to some shows and there'd be the grumpy old guy sitting behind the table and barely want to look up from you and not answer any questions from you. That's not at all what I am or what I wanted to be. And so I, I've got kind of my elevator pitch of here's what I've got. Here's where it's at. Here's how it's organized. You know, let me know if you've got any questions and let me know if there's anything in particular that you think of that you're looking for, because I'd be happy to help you find it. But other than that, I'm going to let you start, start looking. Right. And that seems to, to work out well. You know, there's some people that like to just sit down and dig. You know, I've got guys that'll come in and sit for an hour to two hours and dig through my quarter boxes and fill up one row and two row boxes full of of those cards. And I've got other people who are looking for specific things and they want to get in and they want to get out. You know, I've got people that want to buy and look at the junk wax type packs and boxes that I've got the guys that only care about the vintage sets. And if I haven't found any, any new sixties and seventies stuff, they're out, you know, in, in two minutes. And so it's just been a real variety of things across the, across the board. You know, you mentioned the national, how many nationals have you been to before? 
I've only been to two. And so I had never gone, you know, when I was young, um, I went to the 2017 in Chicago and the 2019 in Chicago. And what's your experience been with the national? What'd you think? The first year I only went for one day and I was completely overwhelmed when I walked into that, that room. And as far as the eye could see, there was tables and setups and the main stage and the, the, the big autograph pavilion. stuff, the autograph pavilion, I was overwhelmed. And so I was only there for one, for one day and kind of soaked it all in. I had more of a plan that second year, actually had a chance to do some of the, uh, a panel conversation on the main stage, talking about content creation. At that point, I was just representing um, the blog and doing blogging. Uh, Jeff that you talked about earlier was was one of the members talking about YouTube content. There are some other people up there talking about podcasting, which I hadn't done at the time. And I was there for three days that time and had a chance to space out my own shopping as well as the relationship building aspect that I wanted to do as well as is having a chance to participate and do some interviews and things like that for the, the blog. And so it was a, a much more um, much more manageable type of thing the second time. And I'm really hoping that next year in 2021, we're able to, to get back together in Chicago again for, for another one. Yeah. I would tell anyone thinking, first of all, you absolutely should go to the national. Like if it's at all in your pot, in your power and possible, you need to go because it's an experience like you have never had in the hobby. I can guarantee it. And you better not only go for one day because yep. you there is no way to do it. It's, now, I would tell you, if you can only go for one day or not go at all, you should go for one day. But if it, it you will be left with wanting so much more and there's so much more to see. I mean, it usually takes me two full days to finally see the whole floor. Yep. And it's, I mean, literally one of my favorite events every year it goes right on the right whenever it is it goes on the calendar and i tell my wife like we're not doing nothing else is happening right here i almost missed my parents 40 or 50th wedding anniversary last year because it happened to fall during the national i'm like i'm not coming back like y'all can have a part i'll see you when i get back you know i know that sounds terrible i ended up coming back early but uh not as early as they probably would have wanted but i made it for the party so it was all good but would you agree that the national is just one of those experiences that should be had by all collectors out there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there it's, it's, there's so much regardless of how you like to collect. There's, there's stuff you've never seen before. There's old stuff that you've never seen before. There's modern stuff. If that's what you're about, there's wax and buy a new product. If that's what you're all about, you can learn so much about at the different main stage presentations. You get a chance to interact face to face with the manufacturers. There's something for everybody. If you're a non-sports collector, whatever it might be, the nationals got it all for you. And so if you have the opportunity to go, yeah, I would highly recommend you go. And if at all possible, like you said, go for multiple days because it gives you a chance to not feel that pressure to see it all in one compressed amount of time and let you soak it all in and, and just enjoy the experience. And let's not, you know, downplay the significance of the people too, right? Because if anybody going out there, going to the national next year in Chicago, if it happens, hopefully it happens. You can see Mike or I come up and say hi, That's right? For sure. For sure. Uh, tell us how much you hate our shows. That'd be great. <laughs> We'd love to hear that now. Uh, we really, uh, appreciate it. And Mike, man, 
I'm telling you, thank you so much for kind of being an inspiration for me to starting this podcast and what you're doing at Waxpack Hero is amazing. Why don't you tell everybody kind of how they can find you and follow you and find you out there? Yeah. And, and thanks for saying that. You know, it, it's one of the things that I, I continue to go back to and, you know, before I get to the other piece, sure. Is, one of the things I love about the hobby so much is that there's something for everybody. And whether you want to collect vintage, whether you want to collect modern, whether you want to collect hockey or whether you want to, you know, collect football, whatever it might be, there's something for everybody. If you want to focus on a player or a team, whatever it is. And the same thing I think holds true with content creation. You know, there's a growing exponentially growing number of content creators out there, either doing video content or podcasts, and we've got now vintage podcasts and modern podcasts and everything out there. And there's room for all of it, just like there's room for all different kinds of collectors. And so, yeah, welcome aboard. I'm fairly new too. I've been doing this for less than a year as well, but I'm having a blast and I'm glad that you're coming and bringing your angle to it as well. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the Mike summer. That's, that's probably the social media channel that I'm most active on, but I've got a, um, YouTube presence and a uh, Facebook presence and um, Instagram presence as well. But at the Mike Summer on Twitter is probably the most interactive. And waxpackhero.com is kind of my main landing page for both my written content as well as the podcast links are all there too. Um, like you said, it's available on all of the other podcast platforms, uh, iTunes, Google, all of that type of stuff. But um, yeah, waxpackhero.com and at the Mike Summer are the main two places. How does it feel to be on a YouTube video? I know this is a podcast, but we also shoot this for YouTube. Is it? Does it feel weird? No, it's good. I've got a YouTube channel. I've opened up some product on YouTube, okay. and I and I kind of cross post my audio content on YouTube. But uh, yeah, and the uh, about the card show is another podcast that I've been on that uh, starts as a live. Uh, a live YouTube feed on, on Wednesday evenings. And so I've been on a little bit before, but I enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Well, thanks again for being here, Mike. Uh, hope everybody out there enjoyed this. Go follow Mike, go check him out, man. I'd love to have you back sometime. We'll, we'll figure out uh, what we can talk about as you start working on these sets. Maybe we can work, we can work on that, but I would, I would love to do it. You know, the, these, these vintage sets, the, the seventies oddball and, and food issues are a lot of fun for me to put together too, and track down those cards. So I'm sure there will be plenty for us to talk about. No doubt. And I'm going to be on your show, right? Yes. You will be coming on my show probably within the next uh, few weeks as that, as that gets worked out. So, yeah, well, Thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Hope everybody out there has a great day and enjoy it. Keep collecting.